We're in a series on unity, uh, but not just our congregation, actually a decent amount of congregations throughout the county, which I think is exciting to be able to, to do this all together. So I wanted to start by asking you a simple question. How many churches are there in Jefferson County? There's one church, many congregations. You guys are already prepared for that. So before we start, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we are one in you, that you call us to join together just in the same way, same way you are joined together, that we would be one as you are one. Lord, I pray that as we, we study together, that you would speak to us, that you would grow us, that you would change us and transform us. In your name, amen. Philippians 2, 1 through 13. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not contain equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." So we're gonna, we'll come back and expand that more. But before we do, I really wanted to um, build out some ideas. And then I think this, this section actually even feels more clear as we go along. So I think one of the places when we talk about unity, we really just have to stop and start from everything builds from is the Trinity. Herman Bavink puts it this way. In the doctrine of the Trinity beats the heart and whole revelation of God for the redemption of humanity. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our God is above us, before us, and within us. The doctrine of the Trinity God, as one in essence and three in persons, shapes and structures all of our Christian faith and practice. The Trinity can be so complicated and challenging to think about that often we end up with symbols and shapes that we're trying to sort of like grasp. Well, what does that mean? And in so doing... They are helpful, and each of them help us to get some concept about what is the Trinity, how it works, what's the thinking, what's it sort of trying to communicate, but it becomes then this thing that sort of becomes a puzzle. If I can only find the right shape that makes the most sense to me, then I've understood it. Reverend Leonard Vanderzee puts it this way, get rid of those sometimes silly examples of the Trinity you have learned over the years, the diagrams and the analogies. They make us to think the Trinity is a problem to be solved rather than a reality in which we are called to live. 
So, before we even go there, again, the Trinity becomes one of those things to where we, we see um, a clear and fuller revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament because Jesus comes and brings us that. It's a hiddenness, a mystery that we see in the Old Testament. It's there, and yet it's not fully revealed. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing there that we can't gra- begin to grasp. So if I were to tell you to pick a single theme or some of the top themes in Genesis, I would tell you I think one of the ones that really just comes through is brother-brother conflict. And if you really think... <laughs> uh, all, all of my pictures today basically are going to be from uh, Brink, Brick Link Bible, basically. So um, the action of all the stories are acted out in biblical form via Legos. Uh, so we can see here in the story of Cain and Abel, but if we really stop and list all of the stories that are brother-brother conflict, just in Genesis alone, the list gets pretty long. Any thoughts on some, some of the different ones? Okay, Joseph and his brothers. Okay, Ishmael and Jacob. Okay, Jacob and Esau. You could look even to um, Jacob's wives, right? Two sisters fighting amongst themselves. The story continues, right? There's just this constant conflict that's going on. And the question is, what do we do about that? And then what part of it is, is even, what's at the heart of this conflict between the fact that we just keep seeing this constant generation after generation fighting brother, brother, sister, sister, conflict that's going on. And I'd say, I think at the heart of the conflict that we see first in the Cain and Abel story and then just continuing through is this mindset about abundance and scarcity. Cain is convinced there can only be one that is blessed. And so if Abel's receiving the blessing, the best solution, get rid of him. Jacob is convinced he's supposed to be the blessing, so the best thing is to cut out Esau. Judah, if Joseph's blessed, he's got to go. Just constantly this convincing that the problem is if we can just get rid of the one, everything's set right. We can only replace that. And so I think as we really think about these stories, there is, starts to be, some end of the cycle of violence. But the question is, what really brings that end to the cycle of violence? I think Judah gives us a really, example, a really good example of that. Jacob also. You know, Jacob, Jacob is so convinced that if he's supposed to rule over his brother, then by whatever means necessary, he's going to do that. No matter what it does to the relationships of the rest of the people around him. And so finally, when he's coming back and he is going to meet Esau after years and years of exile. Finally, the very thing that he has fought so hard to get, wealth, prosperity, he finally is willing to give it up to correct his relationship with Esau. Judah does something very similar. Right? Judah's convinced that the best thing to do is get rid of the one who is blessed. So, then Joseph actually takes advantage of this, right? Joseph figures out 
the fact that there's a new favorite brother. Now it's Benjamin. And so he comes down, he, he makes them bring them down. But then what does he do? He shows way more favor to Benjamin than the rest. And then sets it up in such a way that it's very easy at that point for them to say, because who, who's, who's got the cup now? There's a cup. And Benjamin's now the one that's supposed to be guilty, okay? The brothers could easily say, yeah, totally, it's his fault. He's gone. We got rid of the favored brother again. That's what we could do. But Judah has been changed in the same way Jacob's been changed. And so he recognizes that the way in which he solved the problem wasn't the right way. And so he doesn't solve the problem in the same way. Genesis 44, 33 Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. So Judah is saying, I could just offer him up like I did Joseph. Get rid of him. We've solved the problem. No more favored son. But he doesn't. He steps into that place. And in so doing, finally allows for a restoration of the brothers that wouldn't happen otherwise. Joseph... Joseph Joseph doesn't know the character of his brothers, so he puts them to a test. Are they the same brothers that the last time I met them? Or are they somebody else? They're not the same brothers. They have been changed. They have grown. They have been matured. And that would, you know, we could go look at the story of Tamar and why all of a sudden jo Judah is a different person. But that's beyond that for today. So we, we get this constant conflict all the way through Genesis. And we get to Exodus and we're pretty excited because there are two brothers. Moses and Aaron. But the conflict's not there. And boy, do they change the world because they work together. All of a sudden, the very thing that's brought conflict, now these two brothers are working together. And in so doing, things change and exile ends because they're working together. I think if we look at Psalm 133, this is a song of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Just right there, you know, I think we, sh we should stop and go, how does he come to that conclusion? I think it's by meditating on scripture. He says, I see it. We have two choices, brother conflict or unity. How, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, of, the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessings, blessing, live life forevermore. So we're just from the, the get-go, forced to face this issue of brother-brother conflict. And if not, brother-brother unity. And if brother conflict, how do we resolve it? And it seems to be that we're seeing self-sacrifice as one of those steps that's necessary. But let's be honest, brother-brother conflict doesn't stay brother-brother conflict. It quickly becomes group-group conflict 
what group are you part of? What group are they part of? And now it grows no longer to be individuals, but communities that are at war amongst themselves, that are fighting, that are competing. You know, if we start to list out just, just a couple of Abraham's descendants, we get, and his relatives, right? So we get Moab and Ammon, who are Lot's sons. We get, you know, we've got Jacob and Esau, which becomes Edom. And so just in those three, we get lots of conflict between them. We go to Judges, Moab and Ammon become some of the biggest problem sources in that they are worshiping other gods. And Israel says, yeah, we'll join along. And things get pretty bad pretty fast. And so there's this conflict. By the end of Judges, it's no longer just siblings, um, uh, extended relatives that are fighting amongst each other. We've gotten to the point where at the end of Judges, Benjamin, the whole tribe is almost completely eradicated. So we've now moved again from the standpoint of just even extended relatives to just close relatives and trying to wipe out one group over another group. So we're left leaving judges going, well, what are we going to do? How is this going to be resolved? How will we solve these things? But this, this theme just starts to be picked up throughout the prophets. You can see this in Amos. Uh, consider Obadiah, a popular quoted book. Obadiah 1, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. So right here, this is, a, this is something being directed to Edom, the descendants of Esau. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? And then at the very end of that section, verse 10 through 12, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. <laughs> Do you see it? The prophets are picking this up, which is the conflict is still brother-brother conflict, even though now it's groups. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shall shame, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. So all of Abraham's children are called to be a blessing to the nations. That's what they're called to be. And yet, we see so much conflict between them, where they're supposed to be being a blessing, they're instead choosing to have conflict amongst each other and not bringing blessing, but bringing just pain and hurt. Sounds familiar? So maybe, maybe if only we could just get unity, then things would be better. And again, I think Genesis brings us to this point of saying unity doesn't always mean a good thing. Or I tell you, Genesis brings that question to the forefront. What, what section would you go to? The Tower of Babel, right? Here, here we get an example. Oh, um, so on the one side, Bricklink, um, and then Paul Allen's done a nice job. He's building a very nice tower in his house. 
You can see there. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 8. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they, picked, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit, bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let, we, let us... And the, tower which the children had built. And the Lord God said, Behold, they are one people, and they shall have one language, and this is the only be- the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there, there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now when people talk about the Tower of Babel, there are obviously a lot of questions. Why a tower? What's the significance of the tower? I don't really want to focus on that part today. I think what, there, there are multiple problems with that, but I want to just focus on this other section right after that. They say, let us build a tower and let us make a name for ourselves. And which in some ways could be very similar to what we see again through the conflict of all the brothers. If one is blessed, then I must have to take a back seat. I must not be able to be significant. Only one can be significant. Is that true? But in this case, they're united to bring about that. Now, the irony, I think, in the story is, is we never even told the names of these people. <laughs> so they desire to make a name for themselves, and they don't even get a name. So God comes in and brings judgment, passes judgment on them, and there's an end to that. If we're paying attention all of a sudden to that name theme, then I think Genesis 12, 1 through 3 really pops. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So God says, I'll make your name great. You better not be doing it on your own. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a call. But the question is, is how will that name or whose name is going to be elevated? If we do it on our own, we do it on our own terms, if we try to desire to do those things, if we're willing to sacrifice someone else to get that thing, those are a problem. We can be united even together to all get our names together to be significant. But if we don't do it under the right thing, then it still leads to problems. And so then we come to Pentecost. I know, I like, these, I like these little Lego images. They make me happy. Hopefully it brings amusement to at least someone else. Okay, so um, I, I think as we, we, uh, we talk about the, the Tower of Babel and then Pentecost, what I'll, people have pointed out is, is that the Tower of Babel story, Pentecost is the inversion of that story. 
And when I say inversion, for instance, consider instead of a united language, those on Pentecost received the gift of other tongues, but in so doing, what we would think would bring disunity now brings unity. And those among the other nations now are all of a sudden being brought in, but it's not at the expense of making them just the same. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. And my father talked about that last week. And so what we see here again is, is that unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Where the divisions of tongues had before brought disunity, now it brings unity because they are united in Holy Spirit. And it is only through that that unit, true unity happens. And again, at the end of Pentecost, as Peter's speaking, what he starts to make clear is, is instead of making their own name great, they are testifying about the name that is above every other name. They're testifying about the one name that is worth elevating. Alistair Roberts puts it this way, the church created at Pentecost is a dramatic contrast to the project of Babel and all attempts to repeat it. Rather than gathering all together with an imposed imperial uniformity and polity, the church of Pentecost is scattered abroad where it freely traverses all human differences with its message and identity. Dispersed throughout the world and its peoples, the unity of the church represents God's achievement and prerogative against the hubris of empires present with all nations, yet belonging to none. God's worldwide kingdom cannot be contained, controlled, circumcised, circumscribed, sorry, replicated or assimilated by any other power. It is only through the work of the Spirit that true unity can happen, that the right type of unity can happen. So then, I, again, we opened focusing on Philippians and looking at the Trinity. So I'd like to go back to the Trinity and think a little bit more about that. John five nineteen through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So the Son does what the Father is doing. There's this, this tension, which is Jesus is called to do something, and he does what he's called to do. He chooses to be obedient, to listen, and show what this looks like. Matthew 17, 5b and this is, this, is, um, this is at the transfiguration. <clears throat> he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to tell you about the Father. The Father says, listen to the Son. John 16, 7 through 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he speaks, he will speak. He hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So again, you see Jesus saying, like, I got to go because the Spirit's going to bring something to you. But he's not going, and, and therefore, like, that diminishes me. He's going, no, he's coming, but then he's going to declare about me. And he's going to declare, declare about the Father. And that's the tension. Uh, the, my children and I just uh, finished reading through John and studying. And one of the, the themes in John is testify or to bear witness. Jesus is constantly saying, I am coming to bear witness about the Father. And then he comes and he says, the Spirit is going to bear witness about me. And he says, we are to bear witness about him. There's this constant tension. There, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son do not see it conflicting to be able to step back and say, listen to him. It's his turn. Listen to him. It's his turn. There's no conflict in that. And we see that as a direct conflict to, or a direct contradiction to what we see in Genesis. Genesis is a constant invitation to be like, it's mine, I want it, and I will do whatever I have to get it. The Spirit, the Father, and the Son don't see that conflict. They are willing to step back to let the other one do what they're called to do, to be their function. And so the Trinity, again, is not just some add-on thing, it is at the core, the fundamental transformation that we have to recognize. Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself for the glory of the other two. It is not out of a position of inequality or inferiority that the Trinity functions this way. The Trinity is co-equal, but this doesn't stop the Trinity from working this way. We don't see that tension, that resistance to being able to step back. James Jordan puts it this way. Each one steps back to glorify the other two. That is the way they are. So this is the way we are supposed to be because we are images of God. And so when we see God's character revealed, we aren't supposed to just go, oh, that's great. No, we're supposed to recognize that that is, in an essence, a revelation about something that we are also called to reveal. So if we come back to Philippians 2, 1 through 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. See the Do you hear that? Trinity. We are to be as he is, as, as they are. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, is yours in Christ Jesus. It is only, right, through the Spirit that this is possible. Otherwise, we just keep repeating Genesis 1, or Genesis, all of Genesis, right? We just keep repeating brother-brother conflict. There is only one solution to the problem. There's only one fix, and it's not by really wishing hard, really gritting your teeth, as my father would say, 
It is by recognizing what you've already been called to because of who you already are. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being in found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Self-sacrifice. There are going to be times where self-sacrifice is necessary as part of setting brother-brother conflict. There's only one that real, truly sets it right, but there are, we are called to image as Christ, is called as, as Christ, little Christs. And so at times, self-sacrifice to end brother-brother conflict is going to be necessary. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Coming back to this theme of name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, It is God who works in you. Again, not on your own, just gritting your teeth. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, we're talking about congregational unity. And I think this, what we've we've sort of done, gives us some clarity, I think, on what it means to talk about practical action for church unity when we're talking congregational, between congregations. One, in the same way that brother-brother conflict leads to community conflict, we can start to work through the Spirit on congregational unity. But sometimes it feels like, well, the best way to do that is just big. We can start local. We can start small. We can start with those other churches that are close to us. And sometimes, again, that's like, well, how do we do that? Read scripture and pray together with other members of other churches. We can start to say, oh, well, I know these other churches and what they believe, therefore I can't agree with them. (laughs) And they can say the same about us. But if we get to know them, brother-brother conflict can be resolved in a way that otherwise can't be, right? But it is, it, it, that can't, that it can't, not that it can't be other ways, but that this is small ways that we can act on it, okay? In the same way, pray for other churches as you drive by their buildings. When we see a church, if we just see competition, the way the brothers saw in Genesis, then we miss the point. May they flourish, the other churches, because there isn't scarcity in the kingdom of God. And if we believe that that's true, then we aren't really understanding what the kingdom of God is about. It is about abundance. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is about abundance. Unity cannot come from ourselves, but putting on Christ and walking in the Spirit. This is constantly being emphasized in so many different ways as we read through the New Testament. Be who you already are, not through just willing it up by recognizing the fact that you are already something different than you were. And through that, things change. 
Reject brother-brother conflict that comes from concerns over scarcity mindset. You have been brought into so much abundance. And there will be times where conflict happens and self-sacrifice is necessary. And as an inversion of the Tower of Babel, unity over the right things is important. Okay, We have to recognize that that's true. So before I close, any questions, comments? Debbie, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. As, as we begin this, and, and this whole thing over the, the scarcity mindset, mm. is I think that's what is behind racial conflict as well. And, and that the church has a big black eye with that over the years too, because they've been innocent. Um, but, the, but the thing is that it doesn't mean if the other race or the other group gets what they need that that other ones are going to be without, that shows a lack of faith. Sure, and, yep. And buys into that whole zero-sum game. Yes, right. And, and so we have to reject that and, and trust God that, um, that the other rich, racial and cultural groups can be provided for without taking away what we need. Right. Yeah. And I was, I, again, I think just to be clear, when we're talking about racial division type of stuff, I think, you know, just we, we keep it in the church. You know, when we st- take it outside the church, that abundance, scarcity mindset's a whole different thing. But when we keep it in the church, yeah, absolutely. To your point about race, I think we can get to that point where we see one is there's some, some competition. If, they're, if, if we, there's something being given to them, then somebody else must be losing, losing out. Um, church can be an example for the rest of the world. Correct. Exactly. And that's the point. In the past, they weren't. And I think that contributed to the problem. Yes. Right. Yeah. We're we're constantly being invited to to reveal God's character, <laughs> or we can choose not to. That's the tension that's that's set up throughout Scripture. Is that we 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 are called to this? Like I said, this, this, the theme of John, right? Bear witness, testify. We are called to bear witness to testify to this revelation of who God is and His character. We don't have to be. We can reveal it poorly if we choose to. But if we truly allow ourselves to be who we've called to, been called to be, then things like racial tension or other things can be dealt with in a way that doesn't mean one group loses out to some other group. Other questions, comments? Okay. Quote, I'm going to close here with Reverend, quote from Reverend Leonard Vanderzee again. Get rid of all those sometimes silly examples of the Trinity you may have learned over the years the diagrams, and the analogies. They make us think the Trinity is a problem to be solved rather than a reality in which we are called to live. Amen.